Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We asked a group of community-based medical oncologists to present patients from their practices to our faculty of doctors Kathy Miller, Edith Perez, Eric Weiner, Sandra Swain, and Cliff Huddis. To begin, Dr. Kenneth Ang, whose practice is in Rockville Center, New York, and is a satellite to Memorial Sloan Kettering, presented to Drs. Swain and Huddis, a 59-year-old woman who had a lumpectomy in 2004 for a 2-sonometer ERPR-positive HER2-negative infiltrating cancer with one positive node. The patient was treated with dose-dense ACT followed by radiation therapy and letrozole. Three years later, she presented with bone pain, and a bone scan revealed widespread disease, and a bone biopsy confirmed cancer recurrence. A CAT scan revealed a number of small pulmonary nodules bilaterally. Exemestane and then fulvestrant were administered without much benefit. Dr. Eng described the patient's status at that point. She had some sternal pain discomfort and left hip bone discomfort. Aside from that, she was quite functional. What was her state of mind? You know, obviously, to some degree, distress, even though that overall, when you look at her situation with only bone and much of it bone and to a lesser degree in the lungs, her burden was not tremendously high. I suspect that at first, anyhow, that she would, you know, benefit from more hormonal manipulation, more hormonal treatment, and she can be fine for a long time. And I told her that she can, you know, possibly live for a long time. And that eased her pain, that eased her distress, knowing that even though her disease has returned, but it's not in many places that would be life-threatening at this point. So, Sandy, this lady's now had two hormones on progression, and one is adjuvant therapy. What would you be thinking about? Well, I'd just like to ask one other question. Was she put on Zometa yes. during that time? Yes. So she's been getting that all along. I think that, you know, she, as you just said, has very indolent disease. She's not symptomatic, and it's really frequently, as you all know, extremely difficult to determine if someone's had progressive disease, progressive bone disease, especially looking at bone scans. And Chuck Vogel published that paper years ago showing that about half of the patients that you thought progressed on bone scan actually were really responding. So that's one thing that's very difficult unless you have some clear sign on MRI or CT that the bone is worsening. But she does have measurable lung lesions, right? Mm -hmm. But those you said have been basically stable now, right? Did they get worse? Well, after the vovestrin, CAT scans of the chest does indicate minimal increases, again, a few millimeter at a time. Each time. Well, one option that hasn't been explored is tamoxifen, which, as we know, is really a great drug and probably maybe as good as the AIs even in the adjuvant setting. So with her indolent course, I would go to another hormonal therapy, and I wouldn't change yet to chemotherapy. And if you put her on tamoxifen and she again developed progressive disease, then what? Well, you could use the low-dose estrogen that Matt Ellis presented at San Antonio, the six milligrams of estrogen, two milligrams three times a day. And he had several patients that were treated with that. And I know Chuck Vogel has an experience with that too. He was talking about it yesterday. So you could use that. I think I'd really try to continue hormonal therapy as long as possible. And if you did get to a point where you decided that it was no longer working, then what? 
Then one of my first choices in this situation would be Cape Cytobine. I mean, that's great for the patients. There's no hair loss. They like that fact the toxicities are low. I probably wouldn't use bevacizumab. I mean, that's the big question now. When do you use bevacizumab in these patients? You probably talked about it all morning, this morning. So I probably wouldn't in this kind of patient. Cliff, how would you think this through? Well, I agree completely. And as you were describing the case, I was just thinking to myself, four to six months and progression constitutes success with chemotherapy most of the time. So I don't actually see anything here as a failure of therapy compared to what we expect in general. On average, this patient's doing better than average. So I would keep going with hormone therapy. One nuance to all of this is the thing about Matt's study, which we participated in, is that the specific hypothesis was the upregulation of a death pathway in the setting of profound constant estrogen deprivation that renders the cells sensitive to estrogen. So those patients had to have six months of stable disease on an aromatase inhibitor to enroll in that trial. And there are lots of patients like that. So I would be tempted at some point in this sequence, maybe after tamoxifen, to go back and give her an aromatase inhibitor to try and make her eligible for that study. Although I agree also more broadly that estrogen alone is a really reasonable thing to try. These patients with bone-dominant ER-positive disease, this is their targeted therapy, even if it doesn't work as well as you wanted. And there's no guarantee that any chemotherapy is going to be any better than any of these hormone therapies for her. How do you, Cliff, approach the issue of selection of therapy, chemotherapy or chemotherapy with bevacizumab in the first-line metastatic breast setting? Well, I think that's something that remains in significant evolution. We have one clinical trial, the ECOG trial, which I'm sure you've discussed, with a really remarkable improvement in progression-free survival for patients with metastatic disease getting first-line therapy, and a remarkably unimpressive impact on survival. We have two more randomized trials, a salvage one with capecitabine and a first-line one with docetaxel, which you have to confess are unimpressive in the end. The latter one is positive statistically, but the real difference clinically is pretty small, and none of the three show any survival difference. So I've become a little less obsessive about giving bevacizumab, although it is my practice to typically give it with the first therapy, and I like it in particular with capecitabine. We've been studying that because it's, as Sandy pointed out, a relatively non-toxic chemotherapy drug, and if all bevacizumab does is extend the duration of benefit for a treatment, I'd like to extend the benefit of the least toxic one the patient's likely to be on. Can you talk a little bit about the capecitabine dose and schedule that's being looked at, and how has that been combined with the Bev? So the package insert for capecitabine, as everybody knows, is based on non-randomized data, which drove us to 2,500 milligrams per meter squared and divided doses for 14 days. Interestingly, the phase one studies historically with CAPE were really pretty broad, and they encompassed things up to continuous daily dosing. Based on animal models and, frankly, the feedback from clinicians, all of whom around the table could say that 14 days of full-dose capecitabine is a very difficult thing to deliver to anybody, we went ahead and piloted a seven-day-on, seven-day-off schedule, which actually mirrored a clinical trial that was done in colon cancer. So there are other people using this schedule. And we demonstrated feasibility. We demonstrated flat dosing was a reasonable way to go. And now we've combined it with targeted therapies, lapatinib in the HER2 positives and bevacizumab in the HER2 normals. The latter study is now finished, but not yet reported. What can I say in general? There's no surprises here. A well-tolerated drug is a well-tolerated drug with bevacizumab. So can you follow up with the patient? What happened? Well, that's actually exactly what we did. 
re-enroll her on the capsidabine bevacizumab protocol on the novel schedule that you mentioned, seven days on and seven days off with the capsidabine. It's nice to know that our network actually works, you see. <laughs> so totally. she's still on the treatment now? <laughs> yes, she had a good response after three months of the treatment. Her tumor markers have come down from the mid-400 range to about 150, and CT scans for the first time anyhow show that the lung lesions have decreased in size. And clinically, her left hip pain has decreased. How is she tolerating the treatment? After about four to six weeks of therapy, we did have to lower her capsidabine dose by 50% because of grade 2 hand-foot syndrome. And what about the BEV? Any hypertension, proteinuria? Mm, not much, no. Alan? Cliff, what do you think of the capecitabine exempra, exempamalone data? You know, you do have phase three data for patients who've you know, progressed through anthracycline and ataxane. Where do you put that in? Well, I'll answer that. I'm curious to hear how all of you and Sandy see this. This is a two-drug versus one-drug randomized trial. We have multiple examples of these studies, and they're typically required in the approval process because they nicely isolate the experimental agent. So GT versus T and XT versus T were positive trials, but I want to point something out. They were positive trials with a survival advantage. So giving the new drug not only improved response rate and time to progression, it also extended survival. And that's led to a lot of discussion about doublets versus single agents and so on. In that light, I think the current data that you have for the phase three trial of the apothalone combined with capecitabine is a little bit disappointing. It has a modest impact on time to progression, and it has no impact on survival. So the two-drug versus one problem we have where it improves survival, and we say, yeah, but half the patients didn't get it, doesn't even hold up there. And it's a bit more toxic. I personally would continue to go sequentially and use them each as single agents, but, you know, people may see it differently. I don't know if you see it anymore. Well, I have a lot of experience using ixabipalone. I've treated about 70 patients with it at the NCI, but using the Daily Times 5 regimen, I think it's a really good drug. But I agree with Cliff. Based on the two studies, there were two you know, randomized phase three studies. The second trial that was just presented as a poster at our breast cancer symposium in September was designed to show a survival outcome, and it did not have a survival benefit, the ixabipalone capecitabine versus capecitabine alone. So the data, it got approved. The drug obviously got approved last year, and I think it's a very good drug. I wouldn't use it in combination. I use it as a single agent. It's very active. We had a 57% response rate in patients who had not had previous taxanes. So it's a very active drug. Toxicity is low. You don't need to use steroids with it. We had patients who weren't even getting antiemetics with it. They would come in after work. Of course, we were using the Daily Times 5 schedule, get it, go home. And it was like they weren't even getting chemotherapy. The myelosuppression was pretty low. So I think it's a good drug, but I totally agree with Cliff. I would use it as a single agent, not as a combination. 